Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and an ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. This show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Me too. (laughs) Welcome to the next chapter of Plan the Stage. Hi, Jolie. Hi. Guess what? Oh no, what? (laughs) (laughs) I was looking through our episodes this morning and I realized we have completed five episodes together already. Seriously? Yeah, five are posted. Okay, see, I have, I thought it was going to be something bad because I'm thinking, oh no, guess what? That could be anything. It could be. I know. It's a little (laughs) scary to say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's awesome. Five episodes. Yeah. Time flies. Yeah. And guess what else? Not a bad thing. Not uh, a bad thing. Good thing. I like that. So you can tell that I've already had a day. Yeah. When I'm like, what could it be? Oh no. I'm on high alert. You're just bracing yourself. Yeah. I have been listening to our episodes when they come out and I love listening to our show. It's bringing me so much joy to hear our conversations and laugh along with us. And I'm just so glad that I'm making something that brings me joy. And I hope that everyone listening feels that amount of joy as well, because it's it's been really fun to do this with you so far. So thanks. This has been a blast for me. And you're super welcome because I was worried that like that that I would feel out of my depth because you've been doing this for so long. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. We'll just figure it out. But you've made it really comfy. Oh, good. Well, I don't feel comfy at all because (laughs) we have picked these subjects to talk about that are requiring me to level up in a whole new way. And I noticed while we were interviewing today's guest, Bianca, about race and gender that I was feeling all kinds of discomfort and sweat and you know, just sweatiness is here. Yeah. Just, and, and I thought this is exactly what I signed up for. This is what I wanted the podcast to become. This is why I asked Julie to be here. We want to talk about subjects that are hard to talk about because we're trying to role model having hard conversations and how to do it. So I think it's really awesome that we're accomplishing that goal and we're having fun with it. And it's like, of course it's scary because anything new and big is scary and that's okay. It's just part of it. So thanks for helping me level up. Thanks for bringing a whole new dynamic to the podcast and making this super fun. I'm, I am more than happy to have provided some, some new, new challenges to your ability to stay cool under pressure. Cause People think that it never bothers you. Like you're always super cool. Everybody tells me that Angela's so cool. And I'm like, (laughs) I know that. And wait, even Angela can experience discomfort and sweats. (laughs) Yeah. You get to witness it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I like that look on your face right now. (laughs) 
I also want to add that in the beginnings and endings episode I recorded right before you and I started co-hosting, I talked about why I wanted to make these changes to the podcast. And one of the exercises I did when I was rebranding was asking people what they thought of when they thought of me. And the word empowerment came up a lot and the word inspiring came up a lot. I also happened to look back at some old feedback and some um, just emails I'd received from club leaders. And the word that kept on coming up there too was loving leader, inspiring leader, creative leader. And I was like, okay, so if that's how people see me, how can we make the show reflect that. And when I listen to the episodes, I'm so happy because I do feel that what we're talking about reflects that. And I'm like, I hit a home run. <laughs> you did. You totally did. Leveling up in your, not just your leadership, but in your willingness to lead out at the uncomfortable edge. Like that's, that is hard work, but that's where we make our progress, right? Like it's way out at the edge and you're so good at public speaking and you're so calm under pressure. I like the fact that you've decided to like to get uncomfortable to take it to the next step because that's what where leadership is. It's not knowing how to do everything. That's that's like that's kindergarten teaching. I already yeah. know all these skills and I will pass them to you. And that's great, but you're talking about like innovative leadership. Yeah, and and my, you know, motto of being stop waiting start creating and then also always saying in speaker sisterhood you'll never be ready, you just have to start. I do feel that is exactly the path that we're walking down right now. And when I think about role modeling, it's like, yeah, we're role modeling empowerment because we're showing up as ourselves and we're we're sharing our experiences with things that are difficult and the work that we're doing as entrepreneurs and the the growth that we're experiencing in our own life by like putting things in the fuck it bucket and by acknowledging that we deserve pleasure. But we're also role modeling friendship and listening and lifestyle choices and speaking up in different ways and confidence. And that's all the stuff that I really want to focus on. So as I listen back to the episodes, I just feel so giddy because we're doing it. And yes. I think it's, it's <laughs> there, happening. Yeah, there, there were a lot of ways this could have gone. And just in five episodes, I'm, I'm just feeling like this is really in alignment. That's your, one of your words this year, right? Alignment. Yeah, it's, it is. And I was really nervous too, because I was afraid that this would feel like an an add-on like that that it would that it would feel like something I glued to the 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 side of my life not you because you're an integral part of my life but that the show might but instead I'm noticing that it actually is guiding me to stay at that that leading edge that that exciting edge of like oh how can I how can I connect with people um publicly in a way that makes me uncomfortable and still be talking about how we design our lives because all of my work revolves around how we design our relationships and our lives. So yeah, this is exactly what I needed to do. It's not an add-on at all. Yeah, and I think that your comment the other day reflects that because when I said, like, I think we should talk about joy on the podcast, that led you to think, well, maybe we should tie that into the pleasure topic. And then you built the pleasure experiment. And then you texted me the other night and said, so I made another thing. <laughs> and <laughs> it's based on the pleasure experiment because that coincides so beautifully with your work. Do you want to share the thing that you just made? Yeah. So I, I decided to learn some new tools and I made a podcast out of the pleasure experiment. So it is just, it's this little adorable, tiny little like pocket podcast. It's just the whole thing is 30 minutes. So there's 15 episodes, there's a welcome, and then it walks you through each of the days. So if you don't want to read or you don't want to carry the book around or whatever, you can just go to the podcast, listen to the little two minute episode for the day and boom, 
there. You've got your assignment. So yeah, it actually, it went live this morning. So you can find it. It's definitely live on Anchor and Spotify. Um, and it's, it'll hit, you know, it'll dribble out to all the other services, but it's findable if you type in the pleasure experiment. Look at this. Like, I think six months ago, maybe you had been on one or two podcasts. Yeah. Now you have three podcasts yourself and, and you're on other people's shows all week long, every week. <laughs> yeah, my, I really think I should have chosen the word visibility this year because I would be crushing it. <laughs> so we're going to go with, I chose strategic and aligned. And you know what? The podcast wind up being the common thread. It's the common thread that's tying together a set of work that had started to feel a little discombobulated. Like I was starting to feel like it, I didn't really, I didn't know how were people going to find me other than reading my book. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, it's the podcasts. And it's so personal. And I love conversation. I've been saying for 20 years, like, what do I want to do? Have deep conversations. Well, bully for me. Yeah, (laughs) I think you hit that mark. (laughs) And I love that when we had our initial meeting a couple months ago about determining topics for upcoming episodes, you brought ideas like pleasure and race and gender and sex and femininity. And we're we're doing it. And, And you're so good at bringing this like ease and curiosity to the conversation. I have a curiosity, but I also have a lot of discomfort. So it's been really nice to just like, (laughs) let that be part of it. And I'm really glad that this is working for your, your work as well. I love your curiosity. And my, I think my, my best tagline is everything's talk aboutable. (laughs) And (laughs) that feels true for me. Literally everything is talk aboutable. I can talk about everything. So the fact that you then will lean into that with that curious, like, and what does that mean really helps me go deeper into that. So Mm -hmm. I feel like we play to each other's strengths. This is good. And I'm glad that we decided we were going to do this as an experiment because now we, there's no expectation that it has to be anything. So I think having this review conversation right now is just, it's kind of like when the boss calls, you know, the the team into the office, like, let's talk about our performance, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do I get a performance review at 90 days? You do. You should give it live. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That'll be super scary. I love it. I will be sweating that day. All right. Well, we'll schedule that. We'll put that into the master (laughs) podcast plan. I love it. Yeah. So I thought we should talk about what's new with us this week. And there was something that happened yesterday that was so unplanned and yet so profound. We, the, you and I and two other women have a little mastermind group and we have a thread. We have a little, um, I don't know. A, a messenger thread. Yeah. Yeah. A group chat, a group chat. In, in Facebook Messenger where we just share updates and ask for feedback and schedule meetings and stuff. And one of the women in the group yesterday said she had tried to schedule a meeting with another woman who's a professional in our network. And the, that person had canceled the meeting and, you know, hadn't really given any reasoning behind it. And she was feeling like, did I do something wrong? Was it me? And then when we read that message, all three of us jumped in with our experience with working with that person. And we had all kind of experienced similar (laughs) experiences with her. And it was a moment to kind of have her back and express that it's maybe not her and maybe it has to do more with the other person. And it was also a moment for us to tell the truth about what we were seeing versus just trying to stay quiet about something that was a negative experience in fear of looking like we were trying to call that person out or, you know, like gossip. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, we were right at the edge of trying to feel it like, okay, everybody, we want to be polite 
and we want to be supportive of, of everyone. Like we, we want to be in this world being supportive and we have real experiences. And sometimes it feels like we're supposed to hide away any experience that's negative or as came out, like sometimes we just assume that we're the problem. If, if, a, if an experience is negative, we're like, it must be me because we all have those self-hating voices in our heads and we all can get down about ourselves. So, and, and at that point we lose the opportunity to, to like get our balance and say, oh, you know what? Maybe it's not just me. Maybe in fact, there are other people in the world with issues and maybe, maybe we should talk about that, but how do we do that with kindness and compassion? Not like to all of us, including the people who are like, consistently not showing up the way they want to. Like, how do we call those people in and just say, you know, we see you and, you know, that's real. These are real experiences that people are having. It's complicated. It is. And to bring it back to everyone listening, I wonder, I'm sure everyone has someone in their life where they've had a strange interaction with them or they, they, didn't have that direct communication that let them know where they stand. And so they were probably left feeling like, did I do something wrong? Am I bad? You know, and maybe didn't have the confidence or the interest to bring up to that person. What happened here? What made this go wrong? And the fact that yesterday within half an hour, all three of us had shared similar experiences that all kind of pointed to, yeah, maybe this person has a different style that just doesn't work with what we're trying to accomplish. It made me feel so much reassurance that, oh, you know what? In my gut, I did feel that there was something off and there was no reason for the way I was being treated. But I immediately dismissed that because I there's this like internalized shame that the, there's just something wrong with me. So I guess I should just own that instead of just realizing that this person wasn't really treating me well for no reason. That, that I think that in that sense, that internalized shame can be used. So some people will hurt us or, or just show up poorly in, in their world, in their business, whatever they'll show up poorly and they'll, they'll flail around and, and accidentally hurt people. But also that internalized shame can be used to manipulate us. I have no idea whether any particular person, you know, I, I have to know a specific situation to be able to say, Hey, you know what? That's manipulation or that's a tactic that people use. But just thinking about this in a general sense. Yeah. That happens all the time. I, <laughs> I used to have a reputation for being um, known as being like addicted to honesty. I thought that if something happened, we should talk about it. And I thought that as long as we were talking about facts and, and making I statements, that that was reasonable. And I learned the hard way that that burns too many bridges. So I've been trying to find the other side of that. And I think it, it actually allowed the pendulum to swing too far to the other side where I wasn't saying what my actual experiences were. I wasn't speaking up for myself. And I, and I wasn't, I was no longer connecting to my, my honest truth um, because I was so caught in that shame, in that cycle of like, no, I, it, it must be me. It must be me. It's, it's always me. And that spiral goes down. <laughs> it goes nowhere good. It's dangerous. It is. Yeah. Learning to recognize the manipulation is tricky. 
It is. And also learning to trust yourself can be tricky when when you don't realize that the internalized shame is what's running the show versus your intuition and your wiser self that knows I did nothing wrong. So I have nothing to feel shame about. And can we define shame real quick? Yeah. So I define shame as like a two, like it's a, it's a primary emotion and it's um, so it's, it's like right at the center, like next to anger and joy. And it's right at the center. It's a singular thing, but it has two parts. Like shame is useful in when, like when you, like when a little kid hits someone and they're told, no, we don't hit. And they feel like that, that little bit of shame. That's the, that's the, the pro-social behavior training that we get that it's not about, it's about their behavior. It's not about them. But if they internalize it as I am bad, then then we get core shame and core shame is like destructive to the nth degree. Do you understand it differently? Because I know that, I, I mean, that's how I conceptualize shame. And it, yeah. it really helps me separate out like, oh, I did a bad thing versus I, I am a bad person. Yeah, that's exactly how I interpret it too. I, I've heard that, you know, guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. And mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's helpful. And, yeah, it is helpful. And then when you do feel that that's the story you're telling yourself, that I am bad, I am wrong, to be able to unravel that and where that came from. And that's that's the work. That's the work. Yeah. Yeah. And, our, you know, our parents didn't have to want to screw things up for us to get bumps and bruises and to, to get some internalized shame, some deep core shame. I have a lot of kids. I know I've made a lot of mistakes. That is not easy to live with, but living with it also means that I can learn to forgive my parents in ways that are useful to me. My parents are dead, so I, I can't forgive them in person, but I can learn to forgive them in ways that are actually actively useful to me and to work with my kids to like, yeah, renovate those, those old shame stories um, as they become adults. So becoming conscious of my own shame is letting me do that work with them. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's, it never stops. I feel like I've been doing shame work for 23 years, I think. Never ends. It's a, it's a long haul. Yeah. I think we need to do another episode on mm-hmm. that subject. We should. It's, it's a big one. Yeah. I'm writing it down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Put it on the index card. It's going there. <laughs> The thing I, I loved about our conversation on on our chat group yesterday was that I left it feeling like that was a, an experience of real sisterhood. We all stepped in for each other and we weren't doing it in the spirit of putting someone else down. We were doing it in the spirit of lifting someone up. And it was also a feeling of reassurance that I I am okay and that I can trust, can trust. myself. Yeah. yeah. I and, heard that come through so clear from you. Yeah. I can trust myself. Yeah. And I think I ended the text with like, yeah, reason number 4,378 to trust myself or um, opportunity, you know, to finally remember that. So that was a really meaningful little chat that I think could have gone in many different directions, but we Yeah, and it didn't get catty. It didn't get, we weren't difficult. We we weren't, and we didn't even share the, like the specifics. We were just like, Hey, this is coming up for me. Yeah. And it let us, so it was for me a moment of like personal, actual, um, personal growth together as a group. Mm-hmm. I, it, and that is communal growth is part of what we need to like, yeah. well, rehumanize. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Bringing it full circle. I know. Boom. Yeah. So good at that. Okay. If we want to rehumanize and Bianca says we should, and I think we should do what Bianca says. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I wish Bianca lived closer than it, Oakland, California. They are way all the way over there in California, but but they are accessible, which is one of my favorite things about them. Yeah. yeah. I went to Bianca's website last night and looked up a bunch of her courses and was reading more about the, um, what was it called? The, the SAR. SAR? Yeah. yeah SAR. What is this? What is that? Okay. A SAR stands for Sexual Attitude Reassessment. It's a core piece of becoming a sexuality professional. So a sex therapist, a sex educator, a sex counselor. But I honestly believe everybody should do a SAR. It, in fact, Ken and I, in the podcast, we were just recorded, talked about how our whole relationship shifted when we attended a SAR together. We did it because I was going for an academic reason, but a SAR is, it's a life experience. Like, you know how there are things like, like hiking up a mountain that you're like, oh, I hope everybody gets a chance to see the peak of a mountain, you know, just to be there. Things like that. A SAR feels like that to me. I want to do it for sure. And when, when I was looking at the website, the way they described it, I thought, yeah, everyone should do this. It's just, a great opportunity to take a look at your own sexuality. Yeah. So there's classes all year long and I know Bianca is going to talk about it more in the episode, so I won't go too far into it, but there is a link to her website in the notes. So anyone can take a look at what's coming up and everything's online. So it's accessible to all. I thought before we got into the interview, we could go back to one of our favorite things, talking about joy and pleasure and anything that's coming up for you that like you want to share any, if you did any more of the experiments in your awesome ebook. Yeah. It looks like you do have one. <laughs> I did. I did. I lucked out because, um, Ken reminded me that like he was going through it. So he reminded me and I was feeling very overwhelmed. So I, I was like, okay, I'm going to set aside 20 minutes and do this pleasure experiment. And I was so resistant to my own experiment in this moment. Um, but I did sight and, um, I couldn't think of anything. I'm like, oh, at the time he brought it up, it was, I, I couldn't think of anything that I want to do. I'm like, I'm just going to rest my eyes and I'll start there. So I rested my eyes. And when I was resting them, I'm like, oh, I want to look at something. Can you go get my Remedios Faro books? So he ran downstairs and got them. So the Remedios Faro is a surrealist painter who um, lived in Mexico for many years after, um, after like all everybody emigrated from Europe to try to escape the Nazis. Their work is so amazing. I've written papers about her work. Um, I've gone, I've, I've, I've gone and sought out her paintings. So I have these books, and I just soaked in the images. And every time I do, I'm just amazed and astounded that this person painted these things. And I don't know, you know how you like just you find an so that's why it says in there, haul out a batch of art and look at it, because <laughs> it's amazing, and I forget to do it. Mm-hmm. It was so good. That's a great idea. And I was thinking when you said you closed your eyes right before you did the sight experiment, closing your eyes is sort of an experiment in sight because yeah. you're having any like visual images in your mind too that right. you get to enjoy. Totally. I want I want to mention something that came up for me when I was listening to last week's episode or two mm -hmm. weeks ago when when you first rolled out the the ebook the pleasure experiment and I said that I was so impressed with it and it looked like a professional put it together when I listened back to that it made it sound like I was saying you're not a professional <laughs> <laughs> but what I meant was a professional graphic designer who like went to school for graphic design I didn't mean that you're an amateur and you don't know what you're doing <laughs> 
I, I, so I heard that with all good intentions. And um, I mean, I have a little bit of an art background, so I feel like I'm not totally out in left field when I have to do that stuff, which is make, which thank goodness, because otherwise, why is our world? So I think how much of your job right now has to do with making sure things look a certain way? Oh, all, all day. All it's day crazy. Long, right? I'm, I'm like, yeah, when did I become an art director? It's I endless. did not know my fashion design degree was going to get used <laughs> this much. I really didn't. I thought when I moved away from the city, like, no way it wasn't happening. But turns out every day. <laughs> yeah. So I will from now on refer to you as a professional graphic designer or just okay. an artist because you are an artist in like a thousand different ways. I finally started identifying as an artist like four years ago. And I think that was may- possibly 40 years too late. So <laughs> so I'll take it. I will totally take it. Okay. Well, I did one of the experiments and I actually also did sites. So stop copying me. Um, <laughs> and we're doing them out of order. So how are we doing this? <laughs> no, no. It's, it's like the fuck it bucket. We always have the same yeah. things in the bucket. I, I, was, I just learned about something called slow TV and it is making my brain so happy. It's not new. Mm. It's just something that's new to me. If you go to YouTube and you type in slow TV, you're going to see a whole bunch of videos ranging from half an hour to like 20 hours long of uncut footage of different things that are just happening in real time that you get to witness. So yesterday I went on a 40 minute walking tour of Tokyo and it was just a person holding a camera in front of them walking the streets of Tokyo and you go buy shops and you see pedestrians and bikers and cars and you go through parks and it's just so relaxing and it feels like you're traveling and there's no story there's no plot there are no characters you're just walking around Tokyo there's a train you can there's like a camera on the front of a train that's just going through Norway for seven hours and you go through tunnels and around mountains and uh, over bridges there's uh there's there's a lot there's like people knitting you're just watching them like shear a sheep and then they start to make the yarn and they knit something and it goes on for hours and hours but it's so pleasurable because you can just melt into it and you can fall asleep and then come back right back to it and you're still just on the train (laughs) (laughs) and right now it's so nice to experience that kind of viewing because you don't need to be engaged with it at all it's just there and you can enjoy the colors and and it's weird how we're we're all trapped in our houses here right we're doing the thing we're staying inside it's weird how it actually feels overstimulating like there because we look at our screen so much and they're so fast 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 so i love that idea mm-hmm. slowing down that way yeah and there's actually a ted talk that was put together by the person who first started this slow oh, tv cool. concept and he talks he's in norway and he talks about how they put this long video out and they expected no one to watch it and it was like the biggest ratings spike in a long time on their networks and everyone was like wait a minute is this a thing so now they keep doing it twice a year and it's like one of their most watched and celebrated events and everybody you know will go along like the train tracks and wave as the camera goes by <laughs> it's like a whole thing so that's something that's definitely bringing me pleasure right now. And uh, it reminds me of John Mulaney saying in in one of his standups, he's like, you know, when in the olden days when we had to wear all these clothes and think of slow things to do, I, we don't we don't slow down for anything. So I, I'm loving the idea that it's not just a stop looking at screens, but like, no, you know what? You're already looking at a screen. It's fine. Like, let's yeah. go. Let's go walk around Tokyo. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> 
It made me want ramen so bad. I was like, oh, that's the only drawback. You so said ramen, and now I want ramen so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to share that's bringing you joy or pleasure? You know, the only other thing is just my pencils make me so happy. I love. I I I switched to black wing pencils like two years ago. And they're they're expensive pencils, and I don't care. I love them so much. They're they're little erasers, or like they pop out. Yeah. So I just play with it while I'm talking. Just it's like my own fidget toy. I I love them so much. <laughs> you gave me one of those last year, and I, did. I love I was like, it. Yeah. Yeah. Have this pencil. I was shocked when you handed it to me because you had just expressed how much you love it. And then you're like, here, you can have it. I'm like, me? Really? Are you serious? <laughs> and I've been savoring it. I, I do sharpen it every once in a while, but I'm afraid it's going to get small. But I do realize I can buy another one. But that one is special because you gave it to me. It, that's how they, that's actually one of the things I love about them is they come out in these um, volumes and then they never make them again. So like each, so I get 12 of each of these volumes. And then like the one I have right here, it's, it actually glows in the dark and it, um, it's like a gradient of this funny colored green and it glows in the dark and it's about like lighting the way it's a, it's it's a tribute to librarians, like lighting the way and, um, and, and they're never going to make it again. So as I use them, I like, I feel it, I guess it, it's about that slowing down. Like I feel myself noticing the passage of time with my pencils, like winding away. It's not just another pencil. Like, oh, this is pencil three of that box. Yeah. Oh. Where do you get them? Um, from Blackwing themselves. So you can go to, if you su- search Blackwing pencils, they're, they're the pencils Steinbeck wrote, to, like wrote his novels with. Oh. Um, and they had a huge following back in the fifties and then they went out of business for a while and they just revived them a couple years ago. And they're, so it's, it's a very hipster kitschy kind of, kind of thing but um i think it's it's one of those indulgences like i'm not a i'm not a, a subscription box person i don't happen to do any of those so when i found this i was like i'm gonna try it my favorite subscription ever to anything well, i have a feeling a lot of women listening are stationary nerds you know yeah. office supply nerds and i when i've shared in the past that i love going to staples and spending time in the aisle with all the pens it depends everyone i talked to was like i love that too i'm yeah. like we're all closet <laughs> pen like nerds so i think you talking about your pencil is probably getting a lot of people turned on right now yeah and we just want to acknowledge that you can go to blackwind.com blackwing.com and you can get your own pencil. It's true. It's true. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And you know, not some other time we'll talk about fountain pens. Okay. We'll really get off. We'll really, I don't think we're ready for that. So let's say like, no, we'll save it. We'll save it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I might need some private time afterwards. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll schedule that in. Um, The second thing I wanted to share was an update on online dating because that is bringing me so much joy right now. I am loving it. I just love that you're loving it. I'm vicariously dating because I'm like, oh, dating, (laughs) COVID. How are you managing it? Like, how's it going? Well, first, I need to say that I'm I'm hesitant to talk about it because, as I mentioned, they they, they, that's not that they could listen. They are listening. They are listening. Hello out there. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Just know that I'm judging you. Welcome to the podcast. So I'm like, what should I say? Because I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be like outing everybody's stuff. So I'm just going to say that the show and tell idea has gone over beautifully. I've seen some really cool trinkets and memorabilia and personal items that have been thoughtfully selected and they have nice stories to accompany them. And everybody has been excited about this. 
And I love this. They don't realize that the first test is how they respond to the show and tell idea. Yeah. So <laughs> when I put it out there, I usually do it, you know, two or three days before the date. The response, if it's not like, wow, cool, or this is intriguing, or can't wait, you know, then maybe we're not going to do the date. But so far, everybody has been into it and been appreciative and commented on how unique it is and that they look forward to it. One person's like, oh, I had so much anxiety. I was having a hard time sleeping <laughs> last night because I didn't want to pick the wrong things. I was like, I should probably write in the email or in the message, like, don't stress out about it. They don't have to be perfect. Just try to pick three things that, you know, that you like. Yeah, I think that you have, it's an, it's an innovative idea and it brings like an element that we don't typically think of to, to dating. Cause when we go on a date in person right away, like that first date is there's like, hmm, there's so much emphasis on just the chemistry, the, on the fate, on, on the chemistry between the two of you that, that it feels like there's no need to introduce anything else. And then you're just off and talking and you feel like you're introducing things, but a physical object really does like ground the conversation in a whole other way. You can go off on new tangents. I think it's brilliant. I think that you have now, I think we should just, you could write a whole book just on that. You could just yeah. write a whole book, like 50, 51 first dates with, um, with show and tell. I yeah. During COVID. During how, to, COVID. how to date during COVID from mm -hmm. a, online dating expert as of two weeks ago. So <laughs> totally an expert. I love it. The other thing that introducing show and tell right out of the gate does is it, it creates a culture of games and, yes. and lightness and fun. So at the end of some of the dates, the person I'm talking to has said, all right, I'm going to bring a game to the next one. And I'm like, yes, yes, we're doing this right from day one. And yep. That makes me really happy that they're picking up the ball and saying, now it's my turn to bring something to the table. Yeah. Let's yeah. do something instead of just, I don't know, like just exchanging small talk. I don't know. Right. It's just not for me. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. it's going well, bringing a lot of pleasure. So um, we'll, we'll keep talking about that as, as we go. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to share? Before no, we I, I think I'm good. And I am, I'm going to continue working through the pleasure experiment myself because it's funny how you can write something and then and and even have done them but now when I come back to revisit them I'm like oh I get to experience it so I'm just going to keep playing okay sounds good. good and before we we jump into the interview I think talking about what we're working on right now is is always a good thing because we have so much always and, and you have been on fire <laughs> so tell everybody what you're what you're doing right now well, I need to celebrate something for a second that just happened that has been in the works for 10 years, and I'm not exaggerating. This is something that I has been on my radar that I know works, that I know people love, and that I've wanted to do and for some reason have never been able to do, and that is to create an opt-in on my website. And I don't know exactly all the reasons for why it hasn't happened, but I finally committed to it, and I decided I was going to create a free self-assessment. And that's a, you know, a quiz. And then I was going to make a mini course that would be like the, the follow-up to the quiz and make an email sequence. So anyone who signs up for the quiz will then learn more about Speaker Sisterhood and the benefits of membership. So when I decided I'm going to make this opt-in, I didn't realize it was going to take two full months to create because it's actually three projects in one. I also didn't realize that making a quiz requires you to have like a master's degree in engineering. <laughs> it's a thing. It is a thing. It's to be thoughtful about it. It requires a lot of 
time to think about the questions you're crafting and the answers and why. And and if they answer this way, what does that mean? And once you get to the outcomes, what do you want each person who takes the test to know about themselves? And then building a follow-up mini course to that, that is a a perfect first step that doesn't go too far into speaking, but actually just addresses some of the first questions that a new person who's interested in exploring speaking might be asking themselves. So it's not overwhelming, but so it's still valuable. And then shooting the video and creating all the questions and then creating the email sequence, which is like five or six emails. It was such a big project and I'm so proud of it. And it came out last week and I just feel like I did it. I finally did. did. So, if anyone wants to experience, (laughs) yeah, this this new child that I brought into the world. If you go to speakersisterhood.com, it's right on the homepage. It's called "Are You Ready to Speak Up and Be Heard?" Free self assessment, and you can take it for free and see all the fruits of my labor that I feel so proud of. And uh, once you do that, you enter into our mailing list, and you'll get updates on other stuff I'm working on in the future. I am super proud of you for doing this. Thank you. I know it was huge. And I love that you like that you you had the initial inspiration. You like you and you were you were excited about it. you're like, I'm just gonna do it. And you and you took some initial stabs at it. And I remember you being like, Yep, I'm in it, it's fine. And then you saw the enormity. It's like you really saw the whole forest and and you persevered. You just stuck to it. Cause I saw you being so intentional and so thoughtful and really crafting the whole thing. You didn't slap it together. It's so intentional and creating assessments is an art as well as a science. Mm -hmm. So just to be able to do that with, with so much thought and not just to collect people's email addresses, but to (laughs) like really offer value. I really, I, I loved, I loved watching your process and I'm glad that it's done. And so now people can enjoy it because Thank you. you did a thing. Yeah. And I learned a lot of new software programs in the process of doing that. And just selecting the quiz provider platform, that was its own job. So if anyone decides to go through the assessment in the course and you have questions about how I created any of it, I'm happy to share that. I won't get into all the technical details here because I'm sure some of you probably don't care. But for anyone who does, feel free to email me because it can be very overwhelming. And I'd love to make this process easier for anyone else who's thinking about it. It's a thing. It is a thing. <laughs> I could probably make a course just on opt-ins at this point. Totally. Um, so what are you working on? What am I working on? What am I not working on? It's a little out of hand right now, but honestly, um, what I'm happiest about is I'm continuing to make the podcast with Ken as well. And we fit, we recorded an episode on sexual fantasy and it was the most fun I have ever had talking about sexual fantasy and not actually like having sex. It was awesome. It was so good. It was so freeing to just talk about it in this really open way. And I usually only get to do that in these like really closed little rooms, you know, so I'll be on a panel or something or teaching a small class. And instead we just talked about it and it was awesome. So that episode will come out on February 14th, which was totally an accident, but a little sexual fantasy for Valentine's day. Perfect. Why not? So can't wait. Uh, I'm not reading anything right now because I have just slow been, TV. I'm, do, yeah, I'm doing slow TV. <laughs> I'm momming. I'm working out. I'm dating. I'm work. You know, there's a lot happening. So there haven't been any books in a week. But do you have anything you want to share from anything you're reading? So 
I'm just going to say that what I'm doing is rereading right now. So I'm at the beginning of a semester, which means I need to get in touch with all all of the readings that I assigned to students um, for human sexuality classes. And so I got out all my books and every single time I feel like, oh my gosh, how did I not see this before? There's so much. I don't have them read from a textbook. I, I have them read from like 35 different books. I read all these different chapters. So I'm going back and rereading them. And I just want to say that if, if anybody's looking for a book recommendation on a sexuality topic, I'm your girl. Like absolutely email me. You can always find me at Jolie at JolieHamilton.com. And I love giving out book recommendations and it's too big. Like I can't just say like, oh, here's a list. It's not 10 books. There are so many books for so many topics and it gets me so excited and I don't have to sink into the books. So I get to just survey them right now. And it's actually a really fun way to be reading. Like I'll just pick one up and walk around the house with it. And the kids are like, what are you reading now? It's, (laughs) it's very, uh, it works for my, um, my golden retriever brain. Squirrel, squirrel. It's It's fun. Yeah. I don't think we've mentioned on the show that you're a college professor and you're teaching human sexuality. It's a thing. It's another thing I do. Yeah. I mean, I I love teaching in a lot of different environments, and that one is really special because for a lot of people, it's the only time they'll ever sit in a classroom and talk about sex or sit with just the concepts of sex. And um, and I'm not like a typical professor because it's not my whole life. My whole life is about talking about sex and relationships. So um, my my students are usually really surprised by like, oh, we're going to do what? And we're going to talk about what? We're not just going to like label diagrams with genital. No, it's going to be so much more than that. It's kind of like a SAR, but over a whole semester. (laughs) Do you want to share the assignment you gave that you told me about yesterday, just in a few sentences? The assignment that I gave yesterday is um, that they, they just need to get real about the fact that to study human sexuality, we are in a body. And since we're in a body, we need to understand that our sexual anatomy is whatever we define it as. So the assignment is just to make some time that you can be private with with yourself and get to know what you got going on there. And the trick is that the assignment is also a boundary setting opportunity. So if you don't want to do it, it's an opportunity to communicate that violates a boundary for me. And so I'm going to just draw this line. So it's, we're practicing consent culture in the in the whole thing. It's, it's pretty fun and it's pretty cool. And a lot of people have a lot of big reactions to getting into sexuality in an academic sense and then finding out that it has to do with them too. But I believe that we can't as researchers ever bracket ourselves out. We have to instead account for the fact that we are people with histories and beings. So we have to pay attention to that. So we, if we put ourselves back into the the whole world we're well it's i'll go back to bianca again we're humanizing ourselves remembering that we we count we matter and that changes how we study it changes what we study so that's what that yeah it's you do such a good job and i think that's a really good segue into talking about today's guest and what we discuss so you want to introduce what our topic is and what we're trying to accomplish here? Yeah. So we wanted to talk about uncomfortable topics. And when I think about my own journey, trying to talk about uncomfortable stuff, there's a whole bunch of it that I came to naturally over my life. Just, you know, my parents were able to facilitate me learning to talk about sex and um, the facts of life, death, things like that very easily. 
But then there are topics like disability justice, race, gender, and those topics were not on the table. Nobody ever talked about them at home when I was growing up, even though I grew up with disabled grandparents and a disabled mother. I Nobody talked about these things. And so when I became a professional and needed to speak up, I didn't know what to do. I, I felt my I felt my discomfort and I made some big, big mistakes like right away, just using the language that I was used to using and finding out it was horribly offensive to people. And so Bianca entered my life and um, oh goodness, maybe six or seven years ago. And Bianca has been a teacher I've relied on to yeah, open my eyes to how I can talk about things and show care for people all the time by really um, using empathy, like really, really using empathy, not just to like, not just in a, a situational way, but by imagining how much of the world I don't know, how I cannot see the world from their viewpoint, and then centering, centering the people most impacted. So if we're talking about race, like let's center the voices of those with the with the most that are most impacted. So the BIPOC people and even within BIPOC people, centering people with darker skin. And Bianca talks about that because they're most impacted. Those kinds of conversations just blew my mind. And then, of course, you know, they just they talk about making it real for ourselves. Bianca's thing always starts with like, okay, how are you showing up for the work? So, yeah. And then you got to be introduced to her yesterday and find out your mind can be blown in a few minutes. Yeah. As I said at the end of the episode, I felt like our conversation with her was really three TED Talks that she gave. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, as I expressed to her in the first few minutes of the interview, I just love her mind. I fell in love with everything that she was saying. And I could feel how deeply she is connected to this work and that she really walks her talk and she believes in it and she knows it and she studies it. And I love talking to people like that because they're just a great example of embodying what they're trying to create in the world. And that's just a beautiful thing to witness. And if I could sum up yesterday or the conversation that we had with her, uh, this interview, I would say that the things I walked away with were two words that are a helpful starting point for any difficult conversation with someone who might be different from me or that I don't really understand. And that is starting from a place of curiosity and a place of connection. And when I say connection, I don't just mean to the other person. I also mean to myself and tuning into what's going on internally. What am I feeling? What am I afraid of? What are the stories I'm telling myself? And how can I be present with this person and try to understand them instead of placing all kinds of shoulds and expectations on a conversation and just be there with them and try to understand. And that made my shoulders go down about three feet because I know that there are moments where I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to show up. I don't want to offend anybody. And the way that she explains what to do with those thoughts just felt so human. And so when we say humanizing the race and gender conversation, that is truly what she's doing. And I'm so proud that we have her on our show because it's like the conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, it's and it's a million conversations we're going to have over the course of our life. Right. We we're going to we're going to need to keep having conversations that stretch our our ability to like stay present and stay connected. So I think she gave really concrete ideas and we talked about so much. I wouldn't be surprised if people feel like I'm going to go back and listen again yeah. and make sure I 
got all of that because there's so much to it. And the thing that I loved the most was that um, we got to talk a little bit about what it means to be accountable at the end. And I love that. And I just wanted to say to you that I'm so glad that I have you to hold me accountable for being who I want and that that like we do that for each other because I felt during part of our conversation I was feeling like wow am I showing up am I doing all the things that that I've been taught to do and then and then there was that I'm like oh we are creating this this intentionality in our life that lets us have these big conversations and show up speak up take the risk to speak up make mistake and make amends. I'm really, really grateful for that. Me too. Yeah. I, I really, uh, I'm really grateful that you know Bianca and you invited her on the show and she found the time to talk to us because I agree. I think this is an episode we could go back to 10 times and get something different from it every time. And I remember as I was listening to her, just a full sentence, I thought that one sentence probably took her two years of work to get to, yes. to be able to say, and you can hear it. You can yes. hear it. Cause it's like, she probably read books, took classes, had to have these conversations herself, and then has distilled it into this one simple concept. It's like, holy moly. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, her work has been enormous. She has two master's degrees and a doctorate and just is has been in the work but Bianca's also always been doing the work like actually showing up and and you know working in the environments that need her help and that impresses the hell out of me Mm -hmm. because as an academic I feel the pull to like stay in the books and not take action and yeah you're right she walks her walk and she walks her talk and she absolutely does the she she lives into what she says and then creates these like nuggets that you can take and then ruminate on for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're a lot of quotes are going to be going in my quote bucket from yes, this episode. Definitely. So I want to I want to read her bio just to give more yeah. context for her background. Bianca Loriano is an award winning educator and sexologist. She's a founding member of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, and her most recent project is Anti Up a virtual freedom school offering professional development and certification. She has written several curricula and is the lead writer for the Netflix film Crip Camp's Curriculum Rooted in Disability Justice Principles. She's an ASEX certified sexuality educator and supervisor, and in May 2020 was awarded an honorary doctorate from the California Institute for Integral Studies for her work in expanding the U.S. sexuality field. Find out more about Bianca at her website, BiancaLoriano.com, and about AntiUp at AntiUpPD.com. Yes. <sighs> I know. It's a lot, right? Yeah, so impressive. So we'll put those links in the show notes, too, so anyone can check her out. Yeah. So I guess without further ado, we'll we'll jump into that, unless there's yeah. anything else you need to say. It's, you know, I just want to say this, that if you haven't seen Crip Camp, so Bianca created the um, and co-created the curriculum that sits behind it. But if you haven't seen Crip Camp, it's on Netflix. It's a documentary. Go watch it. We'll have more conversations and let's get into talking about disability justice because it's probably not what you think it is. Um, if you if you haven't if you don't already know what disability justice frameworks are, just watch it and allow yourself to be moved by it because I think that you're gonna find that you you want to do some work in this area and you didn't even know you did because that's exactly how I felt afterwards so 
Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thanks so much. It was nice to see you. It's good to see you too. All right. We'll see you next time. Enjoy the interview with Bianca Loriano. Hey, everybody. So we are back and we're talking about big, uncomfortable things today because that's what we do. We can talk about anything. Um, And we have the delightful Dr. Bianca Loriano with us today. And Bianca, I just want to say first that I'm super grateful that you would come and talk to us about your area of expertise, but also talk to us about how we can show up in the world with courage (laughs) because it's not easy. So we're just going to get into it today. And I want to say beforehand that I still get flustered talking about this. I am afraid even now that I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to say something embarrassing, that I'm going to say something harmful even, that I might bang up against somebody's ouch spots. Um, But one of my jobs is to show up and speak up in lots of spaces. I teach, I facilitate. Angela, you are teaching and facilitating all over the place. We're both parenting. There's another place we have to speak up and we have to be willing to own it. And I'm just grateful to have had Bianca in my life because the way that you taught me to hold some gentleness for myself around this and the ability to like make a mistake, that's what made me want to reach out to you for this particular episode. I... As a person with lots of privilege, I know I'm going to screw up, um, but I also know it's time to start not just not just acting like I need to do my work, but actually acting on my work. So welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> and yeah, would you just talk to us about who you are, yeah. why you do this work? <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Julie and Angela, for having me. Um, so yeah, like Julie said, I'm Bianca. And um you know, I've been doing the work in the sexuality field, but really with a racial justice, reproductive justice, um, the disability justice lens for decades. Um, and it's been hard, uh, not just because of the field that we're in, but also just the world that we're a part of. And, um, you know, doing that work, I've learned a lot about the way that I need to unlearn the way I was, was trained to do this work and how to show up in the world. Um, but I also learned that, like, we're interdependent, like, we need each other to be here, to do this work, to show up. Um, And so it's not this lonely experience, even though it feels that way, like when we mess up or when we have to be the only one speaking up, um, it can feel lonely, but it's not the way that it always looks. So a lot of the work that I want to do today and now and the future is around being guided by this idea of interdependence as a principle, um, acknowledging the ways that we've just been trained to not humanize each other mm-hmm. and um, to also reject each other's um, you know, processes of healing and also of unlearning together. And so I'm really invested in collective learning and unlearning, um, really excited about the creative ways to bring that into the world, um, especially now that a lot of us are virtual. So that shifted how we can access each other even more. So um, I'm really excited to talk a little bit about this um, with y'all and also to talk about what world we want to live in for ourselves and also our kids. I'm not a parent, but I'm that trusted adult that many children have 
<laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> Bianca, can you define what interdependence is and sort of just so that we know for context for the rest of our conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So interdependence, um, I learned mostly through a disability justice framework where it says that we can't do this work alone. We are dependent on each other and not in a way that makes us needy, but in a way that makes us human. And so what that looks like for disabled people like myself is that we depend on people to help us in certain ways. So some of us depend on people to feed us, to get us in the shower and bathe us, to make sure that we get to a doctor's appointment. Um, And for me, my interdependence looks like, you know, being fed by my partner, um, but also having somebody push my wheelchair if I need to go long distances. Um, And so that's, you know, a new thing that I'm learning with my body, as well as the relationship that I have with other people. Um, And it's a whole other world when you have mobility with your legs versus when you don't, and the ways that people think that they get to touch you. But that's a whole other topic. But um, yeah, I think interdependence is really about um, making more common the reality that we need each other to be in this world. We need each other to do a variety of different work. And if we begin to um, acknowledge that, it will be a lot easier for us to not only welcome in more disabled people into the space, but we're also able to welcome in, you know, parents who are chest feeding or parents who can't afford childcare or people who don't have the type of resources that other people do. It just makes accessibility a lot more um, inclusive in action, which I think is really, really important. And it's a reminder to me that I'm not doing this work alone, that I'm doing it with other people as well. Um, so it's about the ways that we show up for each other, the ways that we need each other, which are not things to be ashamed of, um, because they're actually the things that make us human. And sometimes that's hard for us to acknowledge, especially coming from being socialized in the U.S. where individuality is so focused on and an individual approach to things is really what we've been told is the best way forward. Um, and the reality is that that's just not real. Like that's not the world we live in anymore. That reminds me of Angela, the episode where you talked about needing to ask for things and like, and be willing to ask for things, but also be willing to be too much, like, and like whatever too much is like the concept of ability, right? If you, if you break open the concept of ability, it definitely has to do with what we think we're allowed to ask for and how we're allowed to need people. And I hear you saying that if we start from a place where we're focused on interdependence, then we wouldn't have such harsh judgment of ourselves needing to ask for help. We could we could start from a place like, of course I do. That's the beginning of everything. Absolutely. Yeah, and the, there's like this weird thing that's happening where people don't feel comfortable asking for help. And it's not just a particular group of people, it's like all of us at a variety of different ages with different experiences. And I think for some people, there's shame in asking for help. And this idea that, oh, if I can't do it myself, that means that I'm not worthy or that I'm less than. Um, And the reality is that, you know, asking for help is such a gift that you are offering other people to show up for you, to support you, to love you and some really radical ways that you need. Um, That what would happen if we just reframed the understanding that asking for help is one about creating a culture of consent where people get to say whether or not they can show up. 
And they also get to identify how they can, if it's not in the specific ways people are asking. But it also gives people the opportunity to hold rejection if people say no. And rejection is really a big part of consent culture that we hardly ever talk about. Um, It's such a visceral, somatic experience to hear no or to get rejected or whatever the thing is that people might identify it as. Um, But it is such a deeply important part of consent and of acknowledging that we do need help and we can't get help from people who don't have the capacity to offer it. Um, And that I think is a really important reminder for all of us that we get to say no. And we also get to tell people, let me think about this. I'll get back to you later tonight. Like I've done that three times with people who have texted me today and I'm like, I got four meetings coming up. I'll get back to you. It's going to be late. I'm on Pacific standard time. Yeah. Um, And that to me is like the transparency of communication as well. And just being honest with each other about what's happening in our lives. Um, Bianca, I have fallen in love with you in the last like seven minutes. And I'm just, (laughs) it happened so fast. (laughs) I didn't know it was going to happen so fast. I love everything you're saying. And as I'm thinking about approaching these topics of race and gender and disability from the standpoint of interdependence and how we can help each other to understand and connect, I'm wondering what you would say to me or to anyone who's struggling with how to have a conversation about race when you feel uncomfortable about having a conversation with race with a person of a different race. Like how, 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 how would you help me with that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would first say um, to check in, you know, check in with yourself and, you know, do an access check-in, which is really like a body scan, a body mind scan and ask yourself, okay, how am I feeling? You know, yeah, maybe my palms feel clammy. Maybe my mouth is dry. (laughs) Um, But also like, is the anxiety that might be showing up around, like, is it fear? Is it concern? Like, what is it really? And then also where is it showing up in your body? Um, Because that's information that we don't always tap into, especially for those of us you know, who have changing bodies, all of us do, but some of us have changing bodies at different points in time in our life. Um, And, you know, that's information that we need to acknowledge. Um, So I I would say checking in with ourselves, do we have capacity to have this conversation? And the second part being checking in with the person you want to have a conversation with. And that too is about that culture of consent and saying, hey, I really love what you had to say about this topic. Are you open to engaging with me right now a little bit more about it? Um, And that offers people the opportunity to check in with themselves and be like, oh, thanks for asking. I'm not really ready. I really got to go to the bathroom. I want to go to this other thing. Like it gives people the opportunity to be honest and be human. And um, that to me is always a good thing. And I think if that person says yes, um, you know, for me, the way that I get to know people is by asking questions and asking questions that I really want to know the answer to. So I'm not good with small talk because I don't care how you're doing in general, like, tell me, how are you sleeping during the pandemic? How was yeah. your sleep? <laughs> um, how are you feeling about being in your body and moving and moving? And what are the songs you like to hear? Um, so yeah, so for me, I just dive right into like the, the real question I want to know, which is something like, you know, I'm a lighter skin person. And um, what are the ways that I need to show up and be present for the work that we need to do together. And really, you know, that for me is one of those guiding principles of like all justice frameworks, which is being led by those most impacted. And so, you know, acknowledging that, yes, I'm a member of a variety of different communities, but colorism is real in Black communities and communities of color. And so, 
you know, one of those ways that I have to imagine and understand and then implement the strategically use, strategically using the power that I have as a lighter skin person is really important to me to understand. And that means that I have to be open to hearing critique and also to being corrected by those who are impacted in a way that I'm not. And so when I welcome that conversation, um, it gives me an opportunity to learn. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm being told that I'm doing all these things wrong. Um, and usually that's the way that people approach me because they know that I'm invested in the change and they know that I want to correct um, any harm that maybe is possible for repair. Um, and that I generally have an interest in that. And that's rooted in building relationships with people. And we have to learn to communicate with each other. And if we don't, <laughs> that creates a riff. Um, and also acknowledging that we communicate differently is really important. So, you know, code switching is a thing for, I think, all of us in different ways. You know, I don't necessarily always talk to people the same way I'm talking on like this podcast, but, um, you know, that's for all of us. We all do the different things differently um, or communicate differently. I think is the other part of communicating is also listening and listening with our whole bodies. And so being really honest about what that looks like. For me, I give a lot of call and response. So I'm always like, mm-hmm, oh yeah. And so what that looks like online and for podcasts is like, sometimes I mute myself so that I don't over, you know, extend the sound to make it less distracting for some people. But also I know that that kind of communication um, and listening style can just distract the person who I'm trying to communicate with. Um, so sharing that with people, I think is really important. You know, some other people need to pace the room to listen. Some other people need to make different sounds to listen. Um, you know, some people need to crochet. Like there's so many different ways that we listen and being clear about that with people is also, I think, an important part of um, the communication and the relationship. Because if we're asking someone to give us their attention and share with us some content, we also would need to tell them, listen, the best way that I listen with my whole body is when I'm playing around and doodling. So know that I'm listening, I'm here, thanks. You know, <laughs> and I think that's important. What if you do notice when you do that first step of checking in with yourself that you're feeling fear and you're clammy and your mind is racing? What do you do with that? Do you share that with the other person? Do you take five minutes to go and journal? I mean, what what is that? What should you do now? <laughs> yeah, I think it's the context. So usually um, we've probably thought about this already for a whole lot longer than the immediate moment that we're in. And so usually I tell myself, myself often, because this is what I do as well, is Bianca, you overthought this already and you're scared because you don't know what the outcome may be. And you're always going to be in the space if you don't make a move. And you know, this is something that I learned from someone I was dating who manages head funds, ironically, over a decade ago. And they were made, you know, the argument was basically, listen, if you got money to invest, and this is not advice that I and giving people um, when it comes to money. This is just advice for communication. Um, you know, if you don't make a move, that means you're already taking a risk. And if you do make a move, some people think that move might be risky, but you have more power when you make that choice and do that move 
based on your own decision versus being scared, staying um, still, not making a move, especially if you've already overthought it. And so for me, a lot of the um, anxiety that comes up for me is around, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know how this person's going to respond. And what if they tell me no? And what if I get them upset? You know, all the things that Jolie shared when we started the podcast. And all of those are possibilities. And all of those are part of building relationships, you know? And so for me, I have to remind myself and pause that negative self-talk and say, Bianca, you're not going to know if you don't take, make a move. And, um, and, you know, information is really good thing is really good to have. It's a form of knowledge. And it's also about being clear that if I don't ask for what I need or what I want with this person or this interaction, I'm making a decision for both of us. It's not fair. I'm making an assumption about this person that I don't know. And that's not fair. And so just reminding myself that if I really want to live in this principle of humanizing people, I need to stop making up these stories and keeping them in my brain and really make the move and say, hi, I'm Bianca. I really appreciated what you said. Would you mind if we swap emails? I'd love to stay in contact with you and talk a little bit more. That, you know, is really what it looks like for me these days online, like DM um, on Zoom and other places. Um, And, you know, look, sometimes people don't even notice. Sometimes people don't even respond. And that's okay. I know that I made the move. And, you know, just getting through that particular action really alleviates for me some of the things that I'm holding. So, you know, a lot of people suggest like taking a deep breath. Um, and you know, if breathing's hard for you, like try to release tension in another way. So like maybe loosening your jaw, letting your tongue drop from the top of your mouth, you know, curling your toes and releasing them. Like there's so many different ways to help release some tension. Um, but tension is also that information that our body's telling us this is going to be something hard and difficult and new, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be bad. And I think those are the things, those are the messages that we're not always clear about because we're not raised or socialized to understand those feelings in our bodies as being something useful. And oftentimes people are like, oh, it's bad. It feels weird. It's confusing. I should just stay quiet about it. When really, I believe it's quite the opposite. Let's talk about I feel confused. I feel annoyed. I feel overwhelmed. And it's showing up as a stomach ache and I'm not hungry or whatever else. Yeah. I just want to extend that because this isn't the direction I thought we were going to go. But what about when we're going to talk about something in these, in something that falls into the category of uncomfortable? So let's say race or um, trans issues or disability, like It's outside of my typical day-to-day experience of being a human in a body. And I want to talk about it in front of a group of people. How do I, like, how do I participate in consent culture while also being courageous and having the conversations? Like, so I'm a white woman. um, I'm cisgender. I have a lot of privilege. I want to acknowledge that. And I know to start from there. I know positionality is some of it. I can start by acknowledging my privileges, but then how do I make sure that I've made space for that so that we can speak up without speaking over? Like, mm-hmm. it feels hard. Like, 
Yeah. And I think this is a really important piece around how white women play such an important role in the work of racial justice and always have. Um, And the fact that maybe when I say that, some people are like, I don't know any white women who have participated in racial justice work. That is part of the problem where that part of history is being erased for white women, where, you know, yeah, people can be like, oh yeah, Gloria Steinem. And, but do people know like Margaret Anderson? Do people know other white women who showed up, but who didn't need to be front and center and in front of a microphone and who were still just as effective and important in building a, a space for people to not only be safe, but also to to say what needed to be said to people who needed to hear it. Um, and that space was offered by white women. Um, and so I think it's important to one, acknowledge that history and also acknowledge that like leadership looks different for white women and so with certain types of power and privilege in the world and that that power and privilege changes. And so, yeah, like, you know, Jolie, I know, I know you and you have this doctorate degree and I know the work that you do, but when you go to the grocery store, do you think that grocery store clerk cares about your power? No, they want to make sure that you're paying with the currency that is agreed upon to get the transaction. And then I'm not a jerk. And then I collect myself and I return my carriage because I'm able-bodied. Yes. Those things matter. So, so I, you know what else I'm thinking is, does it have to do with the humanizing? Can we rehumanize like all of our day-to-day actions? And if we do, is that is that for you the first step towards having these conversations, the rehumanizing, or is the like is that the first action step? Because I know that holding the mindset of interdependence that matters, but that feels like a mindset. That feels like something I have to keep bringing myself back to. Whereas humanizing, I heard you say it really early, rehumanizing each other, making sure that we're taking seriously that we're humans and bodies. That feels like something I could act on. Is that? Where you would start? Absolutely. I think that the rehumanizing part starts with our own internal work, where we have all been dehumanized in some way, regardless of our power, regardless of our positions. We all kind of probably identify an instance where we felt that our self-determination was taken from us. And um, it might be in a variety of different instances and situations. um, And that, unfortunately, that trauma is a human experience as well. And so I think it's also about coming back to ourselves and reminding ourselves that you're a full human being. Nothing about you is broken. Nothing about you needs to be cured in this moment. Um, And maybe you do need some support. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need a cure necessarily, right? It doesn't mean that there's something that needs to be mended. Maybe what it looks like is you need to take accountability for how you're showing up. Maybe it looks like you need to get into stronger relationships and pull a couple of people closer in Mm -hmm. because they're going to challenge you in a way that you really need right now and in a way that other people aren't. So I think that is the reality of um, starting to rehumanize ourselves before we can begin to... um, or even while we're doing that work with other people, you know, I don't necessarily prescribe to like that RuPaul, how can you love yourself or how you love anybody else? You can't love yourself. I believe that we can learn to love ourselves as we love other people. And it doesn't need to start in that particular way. Um, but yeah, I think that that definitely is a process. It's also a mindset. It's also, you know, a lifelong journey. So it's not something that's immediately going to happen. Um, And it's also not going to stay that way forever. It's going to be a constant evolution. 
based on the situation that we're in. And I think, you know, just a lot of us from, you know, looking at what's happening in the world from January 6th to now, we have a different, we definitely have a different perspective on what's happening in this country. And that's important. So these are just examples of how events may shift and change what's going on. And I think being able to position ourselves honestly and openly and saying, I want to really bring and use this space to have us have conversations that may make us feel uncomfortable. And we want to welcome that discomfort. We want to welcome the anger that may show up that we can also transform into action and that this is that space to do that. And we may, you know, we may not know what's going to happen. And that's, what being trauma informed means is that you think about what are the op- what are the options that happen before you do this and how can you prepare and so some of the things that I do um, when I do my trainings is I offer people a list of healers and care workers who are willing to show up for them for a half hour for free um, after they go to some of my events and that's because I know that stuff's going to be kicked up we're going to have really challenging conversations and we do a lot of hard work quietly. And that means that people may not be able to say it in the moment, but it may come up a week later or overnight or whenever it does. And they should have a resource that can hold that for them and support them through it. And so when, you know, when we think about trauma-informed, it definitely is forms of action and helping people. Um, But it also, for me, is about laying down the foundation of, I have acknowledged that we all have (laughs) nervous systems, that we all have immune systems, that we all have bodies and minds. And here are the ways that I want us to be able to tend to those as we see that it needs to be care for. Um, and that's hard to do um, because everybody has different needs. But I think once you begin to explain to people, this is how we've set up the space to be able to have these hard conversations, people are like, wow, you put a lot of energy and time into offering this space, Jolie. Bet. Let's do it. <laughs> I hear, yeah, like making that container. And I learned from Bianca to include an aftercare plan for everybody, like at the beginning of my classes. And I I do it with my college students. I do it with other groups. It's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does make me feel more confident when I bring, I hadn't actually thought about that in relation to this particular question, but when I'm going to bring people to to face darkness or to face um, their own fears or to face a huge, like tragic thing. If I've already made that aftercare plan, they've seen me show confidence that they can care for themselves. Like they, they, they rise to the challenge better. Like, oh, she's taking seriously that I'm going to need care. So they come into the space differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm really only just putting that together. Like, oh, that's part, it's an arc. I'm giving them a learning arc and I'm setting them up. And that's when we're speaking with other people, there's always, we're trying to communicate something. So it's always a learning arc. Right. And that's definitely not what we got when we were doing those experiences. And so (laughs) we figured it out by struggling. And that's, that's the thing that I think a lot of our elders tell us is that like, that's how it was for me, but that doesn't mean that it's right. And that doesn't mean that we have to keep replicating it. And so, you know, for me, that's, what was told to me over and over again. And I just decided to do it differently. And what I'm finding is people really respond to it, especially during a pandemic where they don't feel connected. And, you know, so doing an access check-in with a group of 30 people on Zoom, yeah, it might take like an hour, but people really like feeling connected. People really appreciate hearing other individuals say, I'm non-disabled, but my body needs to get into this yoga pose. (laughs) 
four times a day. And that's what I'm going to be doing. And you might see me turn my camera off. That's what I'm doing. You know, that's really helpful because it creates an environment where people feel that they can show up fully and not be ashamed or feel that they're being surveilled because of what they're doing to show up in the space. And, um, it's a really radical way of teaching and it's a really radical way of bringing people in that we haven't always had examples of. Um, and so that can also feel scary. Am I doing this right? Is this the accurate thing? And the reality is you've got to do it to get the information. You're not going to know how to evaluate it if you have nothing to implement or try. Bianca, what are the events you teach or run and are they open to the public? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of work similar to Jolie in the sexuality <laughs> field. And yeah, she does big, huge, like life-changing work in some areas that nobody else is doing as far as I know. Okay, tell I me everything. I get to review a lot of things, so like write it down. <laughs> yeah, tell me, every, tell me everything. The most recent um, biggest piece that like my full self is in. Um, so I had this dream of creating a virtual freedom school in the spirit of the freedom schools that were created in the 50s in the U.S. South um, for young Black children, where those were created by their Black educators saying, okay, separate and unequal is a thing in this country. So let's pull our resources and our brilliance and let's create our own curriculum. What do our young people need? And let's identify the core areas and then let's implement it. And so the the freedom schools in that way are definitely led by community members, identifying where the gaps are. And so I've created um, what I like to call this virtual freedom school called Anti-Up Professional Development. And I picked the term Anti-Up because it's a poker term where people put all their chips in and they're like, let's bet on that. Um, and they bet on winning. And, you know, that's my vision of like, we have to go all in when it comes to these ideas of equity, when it comes to building relationships, because if we do it just a little bit, bit, we're not going to get the outcome that we're really seeking. Um, and so I've created a certificate program that has nine classes and one intensive um, experience. And they're focused on these justice frameworks and helping people understand them a little bit more, the history of them, but also how to implement them. What are some of the missed opportunities? What's the evolution of these ideas? Um, and what I'm trying to do is fill the gaps for sexuality and public health professionals, but actually it's really for people who work with people. Um, and so the it's bigger- way bigger than any, like se when we say sexuality, this happens in my work too, Bianca, like there's, we say that and people think, oh, that goes in the box and we put that box in the bedroom under the bed and then we make sure the children never see it and all that. It's not that though, it's sexuality. In other words, like your whole being living in a world that exists because beings replicate by having a sexual act. Mm -hmm. So it's related to everything and everything. It, it is, it's huge. Absolutely. And it's also about like shifting to a culture of consent because we live in a rape culture right now. And so what does that look like? Well, it looks like needing to create this container by sharing here are my guiding principles and here are the frameworks that I'm using to build this for us to hold and be here together. And so I do that in something that's called a sexual attitude reassessment, which is a SAR. Um, and it's two or three days, depending on what type of focus the SAR has. And it's intensive. You know, we're no more than five hours hours on the computer together, um, because I believe that's just how we should do it <laughs> online. I won't look at a computer for more than that a day. Um, and, you know, we talk really honestly, um, using popular culture, using forms of media like poetry and advertisements, etc. And we talk about a variety of different sexuality topics 
that is that's guided by an intersectional framework. And so what I mean by that is we bring in our full selves and it's a place where we watch, a, you know, um, if people are familiar with the TV show, This Is Us, we watch a clip of, you know, the Black family having their young Black daughter come out to them as not heterosexual. And we get to talk about like, what came up for us? Who do we think created this? Was this for heterosexual parents to watch? You know, how is this a racialized conversation that's coming up for us? Um, if we're queer in the space, what was it like to hear that? Um, do we wish that we had our parents respond in this way? And then also on the other end, things like, you know, is this abuser logic and the things that the parents are saying to this young person, where we're going to love you no more, more than, no one in the world is going to love you more than us. Like those are things that we really need to explore a little bit more deeply. Um, because if it was a different context of a young person with their young partner and the partner saying, oh, nobody's going to love you the way I love you, we would definitely see the red flags. And so what happens when we hear that language in the exact same way, but the, it's, you know, the person who's saying it is a person of power over this young person as a parent or guardian. And really talking about the power that shows up and why is it that we're comfortable giving a pass to a parent saying that, but we're immediately going into red flag zone when it's a partner of that young person saying it. And so, you know, being really honest about why we hold those beliefs and also what are the ways that we... <laughs> feel discomfort? And what are the ways that we stay curious to learn more? And so a SAR isn't necessarily something where you get the answers. It definitely isn't. But you leave with more questions and, and more clarity about like who you are and where you need to create stronger boundaries and also where you need to start doing referrals. You know, one of the things that I really <laughs> in our field is this idea that, oh, if you're a sexuality professional, you need to be ready to talk about everything. No, you don't. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no matter what field you're in, like erase that, delete, control, alt, delete on the idea that you need to be able to serve everyone, speak to everybody's issues and, but make your circle big enough, right? So that you know who, you know who they should go talk to. Cause we want to talk about bringing big conversations to, to into like the spotlight. We want to actually, it's not just the little conversations, though those matter. We want to bring the big conversations out, have them. And I'm not the right person to have all those conversations. Mm -hmm. So if I have constantly like the opportunity to revisit, like going to classes at Anti-Up is one of the ways I revisit who's working in the world on these big, like uncomfortable concepts for themselves. Because if they're doing that work, then I know I can at least trust them to start from the premise of like humanizing mm -hmm. interconnectedness. So yeah, it's, it's like, it's a way to make community with other people by, by just going and being in these spaces. Yeah. And it's also inviting us, like the invitation is really, we cannot treat people the way we want to be treated because we are not the center of the world. Right. And that's a big shift. It's kind of like when I say equality is not the goal, people are like, oh, what do you mean? But equality is good. And I'm like, yeah, we're talking about equity now. You know, we're, we've passed that point <laughs> on a journey towards justice and equality doesn't get us there as quickly as equity does as quickly as. It's so 1985. Exactly. Like, that's <laughs> not what we live in now that we've inherited. Um, <laughs> and that I think is really important because I just lost my train of thought. So. <laughs> you were telling us how awesome you are. <laughs> yeah. No, jo it really is. Yeah, we only have about five minutes left, Jolie. So I want to make sure that we get some of your last questions and that you okay. have so many good ones. Yeah. So I have a question that I think will probably take the whole time. 
I know. Okay. We talked about, we're making mistakes and I think we can apply the ideas you've already mentioned. We can humanize, we can, we can remember that we're a person and that we make mistakes, but in community, we need to also be in willing to hold each other accountable and to be held accountable. So I would love if you could describe what it looks and feels like to be accountable to each other, because that feels like the next step to me. It is. It's huge. And I think this is something that young people also need to learn. Children, you know, we can teach this to our toddlers. Like there's no wrong age to begin to talk about accountability. And I think for me, what that looks like and how I've put that into place in my life is I've invited someone who is completely opposite of me, literally like a white Jewish queer masculine person who is a parent, um, I've invited them to build a relationship with me and be my accountability partner. And so that person is Corey Silverberg, which some people may know is um, a children's author. And we knew each other in the field for decades. And, you know, we were kind of like, oh yeah, we know each other, whatever. But it wasn't until um, my mom died five years, five years ago, Corey's mom died a couple of years um, ago as well. And so we just, you know, found each other to talk about like, what is it like losing your first relationship on the planet and how has, how has our life changed? Um, and we had two completely different grieving experiences. You know, I had a very isolated one and Corey is raising a kid and with a partner um, and was around people and needed to do things. I was the complete opposite. Um, anyway, so we really connected with our grieving process and being able to openly talk about death and dying without people feeling like we were considering suicide, you know, that, and also being able to hold each other's grief without being fearful that it's contagious. Um, and that was like a big thing that, you know, I experienced being alone and grieving in public, um, at that time. Anyways, so I invited Corey to like be my accountability partner. And what that looks like for me is that, um, you know, Corey checks in with me via text, um, at least once a week and is like, what's on your plate? You know, and he's like, Bianca, before you say yes to anything, forward it to me. I will hold you accountable and say, what else can you do it at this time? You cannot settle for this amount of money. Like you need to ask them for this. Here's a script. Right. So that's the way that we've built that relationship. And I do the same thing with him. He'll email me or call me and be like, what do I say to this friend who needs this advice? Or help me craft this email where I need to apologize to this person. So it really is a, a reciprocal relationship. And that I think is the really important piece about accountability is that it's not just one person offering and the other person receiving, it's a continuous shift and um, mutual agreed upon you know, desire to show up for each other in this particular way. Um, <clears throat> and so what that looks like is you know, sometimes like we're on different coasts. And so sometimes it looks like he's staying up at 11 p.m. to talk to me because that's the time that he has. And um, so it looks like making a choice to have this person in your life and to be present for them in a variety of different ways. And for some people who are deeply rooted in monogamy, that might be hard to understand because what we're doing is we're creating an intimate relationship and we're choosing to prioritize it in a similar way that we prioritize our core partnerships. Um, and some people don't like that, <laughs> you know, like that's not us. You know, our partners totally love us and each other and our relationship. But I just wanna acknowledge that that might be a challenge for some people. Um, and so what that looks like for me 
because I've shown up for people in, in, in a way that they were not ready to be held accountable and they were upset. They felt hurt. They felt that I was targeting them because they had never felt loved in that way before. Or I said to them, listen, I've heard you speak about this topic a variety of times. And so what you're saying now is odd because it doesn't align with what I know. So I just want to understand more. And I think the first part there is I want to communicate to understand and not to be right. Mm-hmm. And that's the first part. <laughs> I don't want to be right. I want people to understand what I'm saying. So you're want- setting up a culture yeah. of of being able to be accountable to each other because you're saying one of the ways I'll show up and love you is by being honest when I see you out of integrity with your own, like your own history, your se- your sense of self, everything you've communicated to me. So in these smaller containers of accountability, rather than thinking about accountability from this like massive, um, the idea of needing a justice system that like covers over a whole country, you're talking about accountability that is not, and it's not personal accountability either. It's person-to-person accountability. And maybe that would be two people or three or four people. But I hear you describing accountability that would feel extraordinarily personal and humanizing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, being able to have those relationships in my life in real time are the ways that remind me, Bianca, you have capacity for compassion and empathy for people who you can't imagine ever having any kind of relationship with. And you can also acknowledge they have a lot of healing to do. I cannot show up for them because that's not who I need to be right now. And I don't have the desire to. Um, And so for me, it's really about thinking about who are like the three or four people in my life that I trust? (laughs) Who are the people that are my Um, you know, safety contacts or emergency contacts outside of my core partners. And that was really an opportunity for me to shift. Oh, yeah. What if we get in a car accident and it's me and my partners? And like, then what? Who's going to call our parents? Who, like, who's going to get the money in our accounts? You know, like, what if we go to a protest and we're all arrested? You know, what are the ways that we're going to get the word out? Um, And who is going to be able to hold all the things that we're responsible for and communicate that effectively? And so that helped me figure out, oh, I need to start memorizing Jalen's telephone number. You know, (laughs) I need to let Jalen know, hey, you're one of my emergency contacts now. And this is what it means. You're going to get a document that has all the medications I take, that has my doctor's information. And if something happens to me and someone calls you, this is what it means. And so for Corey and his partner, uh, you know, the, the note there is that these are white people. Let them talk to the police or law enforcement if we need to, because the majority of the people on my list are not white people. And so I also need people who speak another language because my father speaks Spanish. And so who are going to be the people that like the Corys on my list can contact that can then communicate that in Spanish to my dad, right? So it's thinking more fully. And then it's also letting people know that's who you are in their life. And that begins like this, what researchers like to call a snowball effect, where other people start to think about it in a different way and begin to also implement it similarly for themselves. And this is something that I think a lot of parents do just because you have kids in school, but parents hardly ever do it for themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As soon as your kids grow up, all of a sudden you're like, where did, wait, where did my friends go? And it turned out you didn't have that chosen family that who actually can, they can hold you accountable. You can be accountable to them and you can create a container where you could have not just difficult conversations, but you could mess up and mm-hmm. it's family. 
It's yeah. fan. It's pat. It's 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 what we think of. I think in this general dominant culture, we think of it as family. We don't just think of that as friends. So I'm hearing you describe something that is a process, not something that can happen for an incident so much. I mean, I'm sure there are accountability processes, but this would be about building a, a situation for yourself so that your life is one in which you can be held to your own standards, your mm-hmm. own your own expectations. I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. And then it doesn't become scary if a conflict does occur that you need support around because there was some harm that you were participating in or creating. Yeah. It doesn't become scary. I mean, it's still uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And yeah. but it's not scary because you know that you can go to those people who are like, Hey, yeah, you messed up. And guess what? You're a human being and you get to figure out how to repair this and yeah. you get to decide what's next. Yeah. And, and I love that your group is not just one. It's not a monolith. It's, it's a bunch of different kinds of people doing a bunch of different kinds of things with a lot of different pasts. So, so if you cause harm, you're not just going to get like the one you haven't just like melded and meshed into one codependent viewpoint, (laughs) right? You've actually got lots of viewpoints who can help you see the situation. Like, I don't even know how I caused harm. Mm -hmm. How do I get held accountable? If I don't even know, I'm just being told like, ouch, you caused ouch. I need, I need lots of viewpoints around me. Right, exactly. Ugh. And that's the way that we learn how to undo and unlearn the harm that we cause is if people tell us, hey, Bianca, when you kept hawking on this particular point, how I received that was in this way. And it's harmed me because it keeps poking at this area that you know I'm tender with. And why do you keep doing that in this friendship? And that is important, right? So it's about asking harder questions. It's also about asking, well, who has power here and what power do I have here? Because those are really important questions. Do I want to maintain this friendship or am I fine releasing it? Because those are important things, especially if we cause harm to consider. And it also helps us figure out, well, do I need to offer an intentional apology and make amends? Or is this just going to be a performative thing that I should not engage in at this time? And that, those are important things to consider. Bianca, this has been an amazing 45 minutes. I feel like if we take this interview apart, you just did three TED Talks. (laughs) Every Every call I do with Bianca is three TED Talks, I swear. I feel like we're just like a private audience for our TED Talks. This was amazing. I'm so glad we talked to you today and I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Jolie, for setting this up. How can we get more information about you and the classes you teach and how can everyone kind of follow you and learn more? Yeah, so I'm accessible on purpose. So that means that like you can find me on a variety of different social media platforms. My website's um, my first and last name, biancaloriano.com. And then antiuppd.com is also where you can find all the classes for 2021 um, and also all the SARS. And yeah, reach out. I have an open email inbox and I'm just sheltering in place. So, you know, I'm chilling at home, getting some work done. All right. Thank you so much, Bianca. Yeah, thank you. Jolie and I hope you have loved listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Clay the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.